I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. Welcome to LiveWire. This week, we're talking about going your own way with some trailblazers, including comedian Jim Norton, who says he became funny out of necessity. <laughs> when you're funny, it's almost like people go like, all right, come on, because there's something about you I like, because physically you have no shot. <laughs> Plus, we've got YouTube sensation Hannah Hart, who went her own way after a very tough childhood. And so it's only when you get older and you start like going to sleepovers or going to other people's houses or becoming self-aware in a social environment. Like when I was like, oh, other kids have socks. <laughs> okay. And Mara Wilson stops by, who you may know from movies like Mrs. Doubtfire and Matilda. She was the toast of Hollywood as a kid, right up until she wasn't. And also, I was getting a little bit older, and, you know, I was going through puberty, and I wasn't as cute anymore, so I wasn't really that into Hollywood, and Hollywood wasn't really that into me anymore. Without further ado, let's head over to the Alberta Rose Theater, where I had Beauty and the Beast on my mind. Our theme is going your own way. We have a bunch of guests who have all gone their own way in one fashion or another, you know the idea of going your own way when you kind of break from the pack or you do something that has maybe never happened before, which this week, believe it or not, the Walt Disney Company, of all people, are actually doing something unprecedented. Their new version of Beauty and the Beast, which is a live-action version of the animated movie from the 90s, features the first openly gay character in a Walt Disney movie. Sort of. You really should have let me finish. This is what happens in the new version of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, the character is LaFou, who's like the little henchman guy who's kind of Gaston's sidekick. Gaston is like the main bad guy. And in what is called by the director an exclusively gay scene, invite you to try to interpret what that means however you choose to, uh, LeFou, at the end of the movie, there's a big celebration dance scene, and LeFou is dancing with a woman at the beginning, and then he sees a man, and he dances with the man for one and a half seconds. They have timed it on the internet. It was one and a half seconds. Now, this doesn't seem like anything that should shake anyone up, 
but I don't know if you've heard of the internet, <laughs> but some people on the internet were very unhappy about this scene in the new Beauty and the Beast movie. And in fact, a politician in Russia tried to get the new Beauty and the Beast banned from playing anywhere in Russia. I am happy to say he was not successful with this, but he said that the scene where LeFou and this other guy danced together was going to teach children sexual perversion. And when I heard that, the thought that I had was, if he thinks LeFou and this guy dancing are gonna teach the kids sexual perversion, I don't know what he's gonna think when he learns Belle has been trying to have sex with a werewolf <laughs> for like 80% of the movie. Much more troubling to me as a thing for the children to see. I am definitely going to see this movie in a theater and I'm going to take my 23-year-old daughter with me because she was born just a few years after the animated version came out and she was obsessed with Beauty and the Beast. So much so that when she would wake up early on a Saturday morning and I would be like dying for one more hour of sleep, I would get this Beauty and the Beast cassette tape I had and I would put it in a boombox and I would plug in these huge studio headphones that I had borrowed from the radio station I worked at. <laughs> Sorry, KUOW. And she would sit there listening on these headphones over and over to the tape and I would get my extra sleep. I should mention the boombox was in a closet. And that was not even nearly the worst parenting move <laughs> that I was breaking out at this time. In my defense, I was like 20, but even so, I really was going my own way with some of my parenting techniques. My daughter used to wake up in the middle of the night at around this time and want a bottle. And what I figured out was, if I just filled up an extra bottle of apple juice, and put it on a ledge by her crib, she could just get the apple juice herself in the middle of the night. Which now, you're not supposed to give kids bottles at night, you're not supposed to give them apple juice, definitely. But the joke is on you, CPS, because she doesn't live with me, so you can't take her away. Um, statute of limitations. Uh, the problem, that I encountered next was she had so much apple juice in her that she was peeing like crazy. So I had to change her diaper in the middle of the night, which defeated the whole purpose of the scheme. And this is where I happened upon an amazing invention that I assume is now illegal <laughs> called the diaper doubler, <laughs> which is just a brick of cotton that you put in the diaper a kid could wear that diaper for up to a year. <laughs> Slept through the night, worked out great. The one downside, when I would pick her up out of the crib, she weighed roughly 150 pounds. <laughs> um, what I'm trying to say with all this is, my daughter's childhood issues are 100% related to my terrible parenting. Not to the fact that maybe a character in her favorite cartoon might love somebody of the same gender. You feel me? Like, to repeat, me parenting bad, LeFou being gay, not a big deal.
I think the children of America are going to be okay, right? All right, that's good. Um, now that we have that straightened out, let's get your first guest out here, all right? Mara Wilson has always gone her own way. Whether it was starring in some of the biggest movies of a generation, like Mrs. Doubtfire and Matilda, or walking away from showbiz as a teenager in order to focus on important real-life stuff, like reading Neil Gaiman and having a series of existential crises. It's all detailed in Mara's hilarious and honest book, which has the best title ever, by the way, for a book about a former child star. It's called, Where Am I Now? True Stories of Girlhood and Accidental Fame. And where is she now? She's about to come on the stage. Please welcome Mara Wilson to Livewire. Thank you for being here, Mara. Welcome to Livewire. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So this book that you wrote is really fascinating. And Thank you. And you think that it's going to be a book maybe about, like, behind the scenes of Mrs. Doubtfire or something. But really, I think it's a book about your journey growing up and being thrust into this very odd world for a young person to be in of fame and being in these huge movies and stuff. But also you write in the book about, like, what a kind of anxious... Uh, you know, neurotic kid you were. Like, why did you even want to get into acting? It seems like it wouldn't be up your alley. Well, you know, there's a thing, and I think Robin Williams actually had, definitely had this quality, and I wrote about that in my book. Uh, when you are acting, you know, you're not really yourself. The pressure's off. You can kind of become something else. And so I think that I was kind of scared to be myself for a very long time. And Like, like even as a really little kid? I, I don't know. I think I was a very anxious little kid and I just loved performing. I just loved, you know, making up songs and stories. And it was, yeah, it was, it was something that I was drawn to at a very young age. And stories were really what I loved more than anything else. Uh, did you have a sense of when you're on the set of a movie like Mrs. Doubtfire or something that this is a huge deal? Or because you were a little kid, did it just seem like, well, okay, this is what I'm doing this Tuesday kicking it with Robin Williams? It was much more the latter, uh, partly because my parents insisted that they were going to keep me humble. They were going to make sure that I sh still shared a room with my sister for for a pretty long time. And they kind of treated it like, you know, the same way they would treat my brother's track mates or my sister's art classes. And also, I grew up in Southern California, and in Southern California, being a child actor isn't that weird of a thing to do. Uh, like, kids come out for pilot season all the time. And so it was just like, oh, yeah, you're an actor? Sure, I'm an actor, too. We're all actors. It's not that impressive. It's like brewing your own beer out here or something, you know? Uh, very like, good local reference, Mara. Yeah, yeah. We have Mara Wilson here. Uh, her book is Where Am I Now? True Stories of Girlhood and Accidental Fame. You uh, are extremely well known for some of the movies you were in as a kid. I'm wondering, though, you write about in the book some of your anxiety and obsessive-compulsive mm -hmm. stuff that was starting to manifest at certain points. When did that start to show up for you? And, and was it at a time when you were still doing actory kinds of things? You know, I think that it, I think that I always had it. You know, I always was an anxious kid. I always worried a lot and I always had a big imagination. And I think that's probably why I got so into acting because I could easily put myself in these situations. And I was definitely a perfectionist. There's a story in the book where uh, I was supposed to be playing soccer 
in one scene. I'm so glad you brought yeah. this up because <laughs> it's like insane what you so, did to try to stick to the plan. I was six years old and I was in this movie with Nicolette Sheridan and Gary Cole and they were, uh, she was supposed to kick the soccer ball into uh, the Goal, into goal. the goal into the goal sorry i went to art school and um but i she missed it the first time and i wasn't sure what to say so the director came over to me and said okay mara no matter what happens next time no matter what just say the line which was you made it mom you made it and uh you know we'll just go on with the scene we can always edit it later so, okay all right so we go back to one and we we set up and so he calls action and nicolette kicks the soccer ball the soccer ball hits the side of the goalpost, bounces off, and hits me full on in the chest. So I like there were tears in my eyes, but I was just like, I have to do this no matter what. So I just went, you made it, mom, you made it. And went on with a scene and uh, ran over to her and did it all. And then as soon as he yelled cut, I burst into tears. Aww. And everybody clapped and applauded and that just made me cry even harder. Uh, and my mom had to be like, no, honey, they, they were proud of you for being professional. <laughs> like, that's a, a really bittersweet story because it's, yeah. it's amazing how coachable you were and how much you wanted to do the line right. And it's also amazing how little you understood about soccer. Because <laughs> that is so not you made it, mom. No, it's, it's really not. It's really not. But, you know, I... I I'm, you I'm, really wanted to do the right thing, right? I did want to do the right situations. thing. I was obsessed with it. And I do think that whenever there was... Like, when my mother was sick with cancer, that was definitely when things got bad. And for a while, I, I just kind of... We just kind of lived within it. It was like, you know, my friend's mom has diabetes. Okay, my mom has cancer. It was, it was something we were living with. Um, and that was also when I was filming Matilda, and that was sort of an escape for me because Matilda was a really fun movie to make. Lots of kids. I loved the DeVitos. And then afterwards, I noticed that I started getting really anxious. I was washing my hands all the time until they were, you know, raw and bloody, and I started having anxiety attacks. And right around that time, my mother did, in fact, die. And it uh, was very hard, as you can imagine. I was eight years old. And it, uh, the anxiety kind of came and went along with the grief for the next four years before I was uh, officially diagnosed with OCD and anxiety and depression. And you feel that your mother's passing kind of added a certain amount of momentum to some of the things, the OCD and anxiety and things like that you were feeling? I mean, I know they're biochemical at their core, but there are also things that can be influenced by the outside world. Was it also a time when acting started to kind of lose its luster for you? Yeah, it definitely, I mean, it definitely exacerbated things. And I do think that I, I did sort of lose, you know, the, the love that I'd had for acting. You know, it wasn't as fun anymore. It felt a lot more, you know, perfunctory, like I was just kind of going through the motions. And also I was getting a little bit older and, you know, I was going through puberty and I wasn't as cute anymore. So I wasn't really that into Hollywood and Hollywood wasn't really that into me anymore. What does uh, that feel? like to be so I mean in the book you're like standing in the middle of a stadium in Japan with yeah. people screaming in Japanese isn't she cute yeah and then you're not getting called back you know years later and you're maybe not getting the message directly yeah. but you're sort of picking up this sense that the cute train has yeah. left the station <laughs> definitely you know it's got to be super hard it was and it, it was really painful for me I, I think that uh, even though I was kind of tired of acting it still felt like a rejection you know I still wanted to be the one to say uh, you know hey if I'm going to walk away from this it's going to be because I want to walk away from this not because I have to you know but instead it was more it was more like a mutual breakup I guess Okay, so these days, 
You you write stuff. You uh, do. You're part of Welcome to Night Vale. Yeah, the amazing podcast. Yeah, I'm, I play the faceless old woman who secretly lives in your home. Uh, it's very very fun. Yeah, um, it's very likely Mara Wilson that for the rest of your life you will be most well known for some stuff you did when you were a really young kid. Ha- have you made peace with that? Is that something that is mildly frustrating to have? Or let me put it this way. Some people will define you by that. Yeah, there always are going to be people who will. Uh, I think that I have made peace with it. I think that I fought it for a long time, but I think that Matilda clearly means so much to people. And I got the opportunity to do that. I have to take pride in that, you know, because that's awesome. That is awesome. (laughs) Mara Wilson, everybody. Her book is Where Am I Now? This week's show is brought to you by Amtrak, offering spacious legroom with no middle seats, extra cars to walk around in, such as an observation car with panoramic windows, a full dining car, bistro, cafe, free Wi-Fi, and more. With over 500 destinations, see where the train can take you. Details and reservations at Amtrak.com. This is Livewire Radio. Our musical guest has literally been going his own way for the past decade or so as he's been traveling almost continuously throughout the U.S., Europe, and Canada playing his music. His performance style has been compared to Arlo Guthrie, Pete Seeger, and Mitch Hedberg, which might be the highest compliment of the three. His latest album is No Rain, No Rose. Please welcome John Craigie to Livewire. Hello, John. Welcome to Livewire. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Why are you so handsome? What's going on with that? <laughs> I feel like I just got lost in your eyes for a minute, which is not what this is necessarily supposed to be about. Wait till the Russian guy hears about that. On that note, <laughs> uh, what song are you going to play? Uh, I'm going to do a song uh, off my recent live album that was recorded here in Portland at Mississippi Studios. And... Um, this is a song that is about technology and my relationship with technology, which is, uh, you know, as a, as a folk singer, I think it's important to kind of stay topical. Uh, some folk singers like to go kind of more traditional, sing about coal mining. And, um, but I was always taught you got to sing about what you know, and I've never mined coal before. So I try to be a little more, um, you know, relatable. And so... Technology is something that we're all dealing with. My relationship with technology is not very good, but I have found that if you ever want to feel good about your relationship with technology, all you have to do is hang out with your mom and dad for a couple of days. Because <laughs> no matter what, they'll make you feel good. My parents always make me feel like Bill Gates whenever I go down to visit them. <laughs> you know. So I went down there to, to help them out. My mother caught me first. She's very sweet. She's Sicilian. She, she catches me. She says... Oh, Johnny, I need your help because I took too many pictures and my phone is done. I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, it does not let me take uh, more pictures. And I was like, no, Mom, it's not done. You just took too many. You got to delete some. She's like, oh, I don't want to delete. I said, I understand. Did you happen to back it up on your computer? She says, I don't know what those words mean. But then my father walks in and he says, You see, John, I'm more conservative with my picture taking than your mother. That's why my phone's not done yet. I was like, Noah's phone is done, all right? Everybody calm down. 
Anyway, but the, what it's, the song is about... <laughs> it's about the phones, you know, and everyone's phone. We got a lot of nice things on there. We got the little button that says photos, and in that button, we got pictures from our trip, pictures from the food that we ate, all these great pictures, but somewhere spliced in all that stuff is some pictures you took to try to get someone to make out with you, you know? And sometimes you're flipping through, you're trying to show your friend your Grand Canyon trip. They take the phone from you. They're like, I'll just look through it. And you're like, no, 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 let me just show you some select shots. That's what this song's about. Do yourself a favor, don't go looking at the pictures on my phone Cause you might see something that you don't see at all I'm a good boy, I swear, but it's a dark world out there So do yourself a favor, don't go looking at the pictures on my phone I was with my last girl since 2010 Now here we are, I'm single again so much has changed Sending pictures is the way people flirt these days So do yourself a favor, don't go looking at the pictures on the phone You might want to see some pics from when I went and saw Springsteen but Don't swipe left, don't swipe right, don't even touch the screen but I've been texting with this girl from France And apparently she don't ever wear no pants so do yourself a favor, don't go looking at the pictures on the phone Y'all gonna see something that you don't want to see at all Yeah, I'm a good boy, I swear But it's the dark world out there So do yourself a favor, don't go looking at the pictures on the phone I got a friend in Wisconsin, she tells me that it's cold Asked for some pictures of my stuff and I said, girl, I don't know Cause I took over 40 shots, all the different angles But not one of them will cost so do yourself a favor, don't go number of a girl I hadn't talked to in a while. So I texted her, me wearing nothing but a smile. She has traded phones with her mom, and apparently her mama don't mind at all. So yeah, I definitely gonna see something you don't want to see at all. I'm a good boy, I swear, but it's a dark world out there. Favor, don't go looking at the pictures on my phone. Please do yourself a favor, don't go looking at the pictures on my phone. I tried to delete them. But now there's just a new folder that says recently deleted. <laughs> Everything I don't want people to see is in one easy to find folder. <laughs> Please, somebody help me delete the stuff I've already deleted. Until then, do yourself a favor, don't go looking at the That's John Craigie. Right here on Livewire Radio.
This week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, an airline with over 800 departures to over 100 cities, even to tropical un-Alaskan lands like Costa Rica and Hawaii. And with a name like Alaska, you know their air conditioning will be on point. Alaska Airlines, fly nice. Hey, if you are going to be in the Portland area on April 6th, come see a taping of Livewire right here at the Alberta Rose Theater. Our guests will be writer and producer Dan Harmon, also performer Lauren Weedman, and from Fruit Bats, Eric Johnson. That's April 6th here at the Alberta Rose Theater. You can go to livewireradio.org for more information and tickets. This is, of course, Livewire Radio. Our theme this week is Going Your Own Way. And our next guest hosts one of my favorite radio shows. Calm down, everybody. I'm not about to bring Terry Gross out here. Jim Norton is a stand-up comic and co-host of the Jim Norton and Sam Roberts show on Sirius and XM Radio. He's performed on Late Night with David Letterman, Jimmy Kimmel Live, as well as being part of the cast on Louis C.K.'s FX show, Louis. His new Netflix special, Mouthful of Shame, is out now. Please welcome Jim Norton to Livewire. Jim Norton, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. This is really nice. I didn't know what to expect when I came out here. Have you ever been on a public radio show before that you know of? Um, no, unless I was just listed in suspects. <laughs> when they were like reading the police blotter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My and... name came up as a possibility. Are you at all uh, intimidated by this other world? Because you tend to do a really raucous, kind of no-holds-bar style of radio. People say anything they want. They're not too worried about hurting feelings. That's the only thing public radio listeners are afraid of, is having their feelings hurt. Yeah, I never really cared what people thought. I mean, when you're, when you're talking, doing stand-up, I always feel like the only thing I have to go on is my life. So if I can't tell the truth on stage, what am I doing on stage? I have to tell the truth and try to make it funny. That's kind of my job. So if people don't like the truth, well, maybe they won't like it, but they'll still laugh at it. Now, were you this confident or at least this okay with your real life being your act like when you started out? Like, how has your act evolved over time? Well, you just get more honest. Like, the longer you do it, the less you need the audience to agree with you. Like, I always want the audience to have fun and think it's funny, but I don't need the audience to agree with everything I'm saying. So you get more confident in your opinions, but I'm still the same insecure disaster I was when I started. No comedian is in a head case. I don't know one comedian in 27 years who's like, oh, I feel terrific about myself. Like, I don't know any of them. So what were you like as a kid in New Jersey? Like, what was going on with you? Were you obsessed with comedy? Were you thinking, I want to be a stand-up comic? Like, what, what was your process? I wanted to be a comedian from the time I was 12. I saw Richard Pryor, and I'm like, oh, that's what you do with this whole, this making people laugh thing. That's where you take it. But I was a weird insecure little boy. Like, there's some really good-looking comedians, but you see very few classically beautiful male or female comedians, because they already got invited to the party. They didn't have to develop something that made people go, oh, all right, you're okay. Like, <laughs> when you're funny, it's almost like people go like, all right, come on, because there's something about you I like, because physically, you have no shot. <laughs> it's just like you, you sort of evolve that, you evolve that muscle because you need it to yeah, survive. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, not even to survive, but just, you know, we all do what we have to do to make friends. You know, the guy who's six foot five who can punch you through a wall, he does that because that's how he makes friends. You know, <laughs> I couldn't do that, so I made people laugh, and I also made people laugh so that guy didn't punch me through a wall. 
You um you didn't end up graduating from high school, I read. No, I dropped out senior year. Why? I, I went to, well, you know, <laughs> funny story. Um, <laughs> but uh, I cut my wrists and wound up in rehab. Really? Oh, you don't have to feel bad, I made it. <laughs> yeah. He already established you don't have to laugh at everything. Yeah. <laughs> what, what was going on for you in your life? Oh, it was just suburban melodrama. You know what I mean? I was a 16-year-old melodramatic kid, and you know, I just wanted attention. Really? Yeah, that was You it. seem pretty breezy about it. That sounds like a kind of traumatic incident. Uh, it, I guess at the time, but there's nothing worse than somebody waxing melodramatic about their past. Like, you know, I don't feel melodramatic about it. I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm lucky. Life has turned out great. Like, I'm, I'm, like I, I went through all that horrible stuff when I, my teenage years, and then adulthood has been pretty good. Like, so I, I'm lucky. I got, there's nothing worse than seeing a 50-year-old who never had bad stuff happen, and he's still wearing his high school jacket, and you're like, oh. <laughs> That was the best time for you? Ugh. Uh, we have Jim Norton here. Uh, he has a new Netflix special called Mouthful of Shame. Um, it's out now. You can uh, check it out there. It is very funny, but it also has a lot of things in it that I think could offend some people's sensibilities. Is that, like, to, to somebody who would watch your special or hear your radio show and, and be offended by stuff you say, what do you say to those people? I mean... Don't watch for it, the, you know. For the radio <laughs> listeners, he mimed giving a hug and uh, <laughs> a, like a little gentle caress of the side of the face. He seems extremely concerned about you being offended. No, I don't want people to, you never want people to, it's like you want people to enjoy you, but it's like, I can't control that. And it's just like, look, if you didn't get offended watching Scarface, I don't want to hear it. There's a lot worse things than anything a dumb comedian says on stage. So no, I'm not concerned about it. And I don't want you to be, it's, it, this is a dirtier special though. This is one of my dirtiest ones, for whatever reason. Yeah. Why? Well, I, I mean, is everything okay with you right now? Like, are you just in a in a mood? I mean, why? What causes the material to evolve in a certain way? It depends on just whatever I feel like talking about at the moment. Like, I just got. I, I mean, I address social issues in it, but it's just you know, since Trump, comedians have been so obsessive with talking about Trump, and it's just like it just got very boring to me at one point, so I just kind of focused on this other stuff. Like, I had a Trump bit in my special that I took out, because A, I tripped on the punchline, that's the real truth of it, ah. but I was kind of glad because everyone is talking about Trump, and the obsession is just getting to be a bit much, so I kind of got bored of that, uh, you know, six months ago, so I changed certain things in the act. Is your, the Jim Norton who's on stage, uh, and, and who is comfortable saying anything to, to just about anybody, is that a bit of a persona? Like, is it different if I was friends with you and we were just like hanging out in normal life? No, I'm probably worse in normal life. <laughs> I mean, on stage, you have a, I, I have a job to do and you have, you have to take into consideration what the crowd might think when you say it. Like, well, they think it's funny. And you're with your friends, you don't care. So there's no risk with your friends. Your friends aren't paying you. So... Uh, <laughs> um, unless things have gotten yeah, really yeah, weird. Yeah. <laughs> unless, it's, unless it's a really great friendship. You, you said backstage, I asked you, because you look pretty fit, and you said that you're, you, know, you eat well and you know, take care of yourself because you said you want to get in a relationship. Yeah, I, want, I, I think at this point, I've been single for a while, and my act certainly doesn't lend itself to women lining up. Um, <laughs> and people don't like their, their privacy and their lives talked about on stage. Like, I've had girlfriends get mad at me because I would, like, something would happen, and I would go on stage and talk about it. Uh, and then I was dating a comedian once, and uh, I've only dated one comedian in my life, and she was talking about things that happened with us sexually, and I was like, oh, God, is that how that feels? It's awful. So I'll, ne I'll never date another comedian for that reason. 
I love that that's your solution to the problem, yeah. is not to stop oversharing on your relationships, but yeah. just don't start dating a Jim Norton, basically. <laughs> yeah, it was really, it was hard to watch, because I'm like, that's how it feels to see it. But I know what it's like from the other end. It's like, I'm not trying to hurt anybody when I'm, I'm just talking on stage, just trying to be funny, but like hearing it like, oh, I know she means me. And that, <laughs> oof. Uh, well, Jim Norton, we're so glad to have you on the show. Thanks, man. Thank you very much, man. Livewire is made possible by Fully, the company that makes the standing desk the Jarvis. Sure, standing desks used to be weird, but now they're normal. In fact, that one-size-fits-all desk that you might be using, that's what's weird. Fully also carries chairs and anti-fatigue mats and other things to keep us moving while we're at work or at home, because that's what it's really about. Not just standing, but staying in motion. Learn more about the things that Fully makes and sells at fully.com slash livewire. Hey there, it's Luke. And as you probably know, as a listener to the Livewire podcast, we are only able to do this because of our League of Extraordinary Listeners. We have some awesome members who help us make the show week in and week out. And this week, we'd like to send a special thank you to Elise Varga, from Portland, Oregon, and Natalie Martin, also from beautiful Portland, Oregon. It is support from members like Elise and Natalie that keep Livewire going. So thank you so much. All right, our next guest was an aspiring writer living in New York who was trying to cheer her friend in California up over video chat when she decided it might be funny to drink a bunch of wine and try to cook something. In this case, a grilled cheese sandwich. There was just one problem. Uh, she didn't have any cheese. The video, as they say, went viral, and Hannah Hart, YouTube sensation, was born. Since then, she's cooked hundreds of things, drank thousands of drinks, and tallied millions and millions of views. Her latest book is Buffering, Unshared Tales of a Life Fully Loaded. Please welcome Hannah Hart to Livewire. <laughs> Hannah Hart, welcome to Livewire. Yeah, thank you for having me. If I understand it right from, from the book, I mean, you really just made the first episode of this thing to make your friend laugh. You're drinking wine, you're trying to make grilled cheese sandwich, you don't have any cheese. What was the point at which you realized, oh man, this is turning into something way bigger than I expected? Well, when more than the one person I sent it to saw it. <laughs> Um, so for those of you who don't know, the, uh, you know, basically the impetus behind My Drunk Kitchen was we were just G-chatting and she's like, you know what, dude, I miss when you would like, just like get drunk and like cook, man. And I was like, dude, I will get drunk and cook for you right now. And that's what friendship is. That's what friendship is. Yes. The first episode of My Drunk Kitchen ends with this is a show about friendship. Wow. Yeah, it was great. And, it, and I think that people, I mean, I think it resonates with people because they do feel like they're your friend. It's a very unvarnished medium, and I think that it causes your fans, and you have legion of them, many of them here, to really feel attached to you. Uh, I feel the same way. I feel really attached to them. I mean, I don't think of it like 
I, you know, the word fan always feels so foreign to me. I've always thought of it more as a community because tying back to your question of when did you think this could really be something, um, you know, when you have hundreds of thousands of people sharing in a like-minded sensibility, it really feels amazing. And just, I wanted to continue to produce content for them. And sometimes that's the drunk girl tries to solve puzzle. <laughs> By the way, that puzzle was hard. And sometimes it's uh, in response to gun violence and it's like four minutes of, you know, me crying. <laughs> it really feels amazing. And just, I wanted to continue to produce content for them. And five years later, that is still what I do. And that content has shifted to different forms. Uh, you know, I've made two movies. I've got two books out now. I have a Food Network show um, coming out later this year. I sold oh, the wow. show to Food Network. Yeah! For those of you who have television, <laughs> be sure to check me out coming. I don't know when I can tell you. <laughs> we'll dub in something that makes sense later when we find out when your show's coming on. I have to say, Hannah, from watching you cheerily cook things while drinking, uh, I would not have expected that your life as a kid was as chaotic as it was as you lay out in the book. I mean, I really didn't think my life was chaotic until I got older, right? I mean, growing up, we all think that the households we have and we share, that is our world, right? And so it's only when you get older and you start like going to sleepovers or going to other people's houses or becoming self-aware in a social environment. Like when I was like, oh, other kids have socks. <laughs> okay. But then, you I know. see what you're doing <laughs> okay. with covering your feet. And then hearing people complain about their parents, be like, ugh, my mom gave me $20 for the whole weekend. She's crazy. I was like, what? <laughs> $20 for the whole weekend? I don't know, man. I don't think that sounds like psychosis. <laughs> Which was a thing that your mother actually suffered from when you yeah. were a kid. Yeah, so the long and the short of it, for people that don't know, um, I, I, grew up, I grew up in a household uh, where my mother un had an undiagnosed mental illness. It led to a lot of uh, unfortunate incidences uh, and hilarity, all of which is in buffering on Shared Tales of a Life Fully Loaded. Um, but yeah, like I said, you don't really become self-aware in that way until you start to interact with other people. I always knew I got along with my teachers. Like, I was always uh, really good friends with the adults and my classrooms. Like I remember in fourth grade after school, just sitting around, just shooting the with my teacher. And then she's like, you know, you're a child, Hannah. <laughs> Do you think that you were growing up kind of extra fast because your mom, who sounds like she was an, a really interesting, really at times brilliant person was also having a really hard time doing some of the basics of parenting? I want to use those terms and say growing up extra fast, but that's not my language because that is what childhood is to me. You know, I don't have this like nostalgic idea of, a, of childhood. In fact, as an adult who's a successful person who works in entertainment, I have to tell you, I think this is childhood right now and it's great. <laughs> People take me places, they tell me to do things, they say good job. I, I'm, I am loving it. I know that you've also done a lot for the LGBTQ community. And one of the things in the book that really kind of broke my heart, because you are, a, you seem to be somebody who keeps a lot of notes, writes a lot of stuff down, your thoughts, and, and throughout the process of your kind of growing up years and, and trying to deal with stuff going on with your mom and 
things with your dad. Your dad is a uh, is a pretty religious person, Jehovah's Witness, I believe, right? Yes. You, you, I read something you have in the book where you, you, you basically seem like you're trying to talk yourself out of being gay. Oh my God! Tried for years. I How'd mean, that go? Not so well. <laughs> uh, you know, I with the unique and interesting kind of childhood that I had, the last thing I wanted to do was be gay because I grew up very homophobic. Uh, you know, my father's religion doesn't, you know, think gay people should um, have love. And so I just really didn't want to do that to myself. I mean, I felt guilty. I mean, it was always there. I never was like that girl that was like, oh my God, let's get drunk and make out, you know, because that would terrify me. I'd be like, no, Stacy. <laughs> Not like this. <laughs> you know, so I waited till college, and then I, I just go totally, in proper lesbian fashion, became completely obsessed and fell totally in love, and it was her and only her uh, for all eternity, until we broke up, like, four and a half months later. <laughs> and then you knew. You were, like, you put behind you the, like, trying to talk yourself into, into not being gay. Like, it was pretty obvious to you at that point, this is actually who I am. No, no. I actually didn't ask that in a leading way. <laughs> I assumed I, that the end of the story was you never went back, but you really kind of struggled still? Here's the thing about trauma, is that when you escape trauma, you recreate trauma. And so if you leave a situation that's been holding you in a certain place, the second you kind of, like, have the ability to leave it, you're just going to go around and look for ways to be held in that way. So after my first breakup... I was more hard on myself for being gay than ever before because now I had all this evidence, you know? Really great evidence. <laughs> Amazing, mind-blowing evidence. <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, it was hard. Yeah, so, I mean, you can only lie to yourself for so long. I hope, you know? I was 24. I told my dad. And he, I remember... We were at a, a chain restaurant, like a TGA Friday sort of place. And I was like, I'm moving to New York. And he was like, I heard. And I was like, uh, and also there's something I should tell you like that I've known for a while. And he's like, oh, like the past four years. And meaning since I got to college. And I was like, no, like since I was like four years old. Uh, and then I told him. And he was like, I understand. And he said the most confusing thing to me. He was like, you know, because his father was gay. And he... <laughs> they did not think that guy was gay. <laughs> well, he said that, like, we were having the biological conversation. You know, the choice versus not choice conversation. And he was like, I do believe that you feel compelled. I do believe that it's in you, and I do believe it. But the, the decision to act upon it is the sin. And I was like, God, Jesus, that sounds horrible. You mean you know gay people are real, but they just shouldn't talk about it. Like, that is going to really mess some people up. And it has. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What do you want to do in 20 years? Where do you want to be? I'm asking because, like, you're somebody who became well-known through this medium, YouTube, which you've already kind of moved past. Well, not past. No, I mean, that's the thing, too, is that, like, I, I, it's not like that. Like, 
YouTube isn't something I'm trying to evolve away from. And I've been doing, and over the last five years of doing interviews, people are always like, so what do you want to do after YouTube? Or what are you trying to get from YouTube? Or when do you want to make your big break? And it's like, no, I'm never going to stop tweeting. I'm never going to stop making videos. Like if I made a movie that won an Oscar, you sure as hell can bet there's going to be a My Drunk Kitchen Oscar party. <laughs> We're talking to Hannah Hart, YouTube sensation, movie maker, and author. Her latest book is Buffering. You may also know her from My Drunk Kitchen. <laughs> Hannah Hart, you have come up with some incredible culinary ideas while drunk and Thank in the you. kitchen. Thank you. But you are not the first. Oh. In fact, many of the world's greatest inventions came to people while they were extremely into their cups. We'd like to test your knowledge on this topic in a game we're calling Great Idea or Really Great Idea. Red, red wine. Dude for ideas. Wow. All right. All right, so here's how this works, Hannah Hart. We have found a list of other successful ideas that came to people while they were drinking. I'm going to give you this quiz and you have to pick which thing was actually invented by people who were drunk at the time. Got it. Okay? <laughs> but, to make it interesting, if you guess wrong, you have to do a shot of red wine. Ooh. I don't even think shot of wine is a thing. <laughs> it's not, but it could be. <laughs> but if you get it right, I have to do a shot of red wine. <laughs> I like it. I like these odds. Um, all right. So here we go with the first question. Which TV programming staple was thought up in a bar? Shark Week, TGIF, or America's Funniest Home Videos? Oh, man, this is rough. I'm going to say probably TGIF would be my guess because it seems like that sounds like drunk. People are like, thank God it's Friday, right, man? You know, but it's, but it's probably not. Just say it. Just go ahead. You're absolutely wrong, Hannah Hart. It was Shark Week. Of course it was Shark Week. Shark Week, which, by the way, is the longest consistently running cable programming in history, was brainstormed by three Discovery Channel executives over drinks in the 1980s. Hannah Hart of My Drunk Kitchen, please take a shot of wine. Oh, no. <laughs> Woo! That was great, guys. All right. <laughs> Down the hatch. Here we go. Next question. In great idea or really great idea, which sport was created after a few beers? Ice dancing, competitive speed walking, or the Iron Man? I'm going to say maybe competitive speed walking. You are 100% wrong. <laughs> The Iron Man was created over drinks at a sports award banquet in Hawaii in 1977 by two maniacs named John and Judy Collins, who decided it would be fun to swim 2.4 miles, bike 155 miles, and then run the Honolulu Marathon. Sorry, guys. Okay, here I go. Shot number two no! down the hatch for Hannah Hart. All right, next question. Which one of these were written while the author was, in fact, wasted? The first four chapters of Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert. Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Or The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. 
Is there like a D all of the above? <laughs> I'm gonna say eat, pray, love. 100% wrong. Oh, how is this happening? It's the gift of the Magi, which was written by O. Henry at Pete's Tavern in New York City in 1864. Is this about who, what? I mean, of course you can tap out at any time, Hannah Hart. But Absolutely not. You do have a whole channel called My Drunk Kitchen. No, uh, no. So if you're feeling no. brave. I need to tell you something. I'm like 125 pounds. The people always ask me about My Drunk Kitchen. They're like, whoa, how much do you drink? And I'm like, not a lot, guys. You're like, sniffed one Zima and I was out. <laughs> Who told? <laughs> okay, wait, here we Third go. Third glass of wine, I should say, shot glass of wine. Da -da 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 -da. And there you go. Snap! Shot number three. I have good news and bad news for you, Hannah Hart. We're done? The, I'll start with the bad news. You're 0 for 3. <laughs> the good news is there's only one more question. Oh, okay. I mean, we can make is some it, up, too. Is it I worth don't know four points? Yes. Which of these methods of transit was conceived over drinks? The Max Light Rail System here in Portland. The Wells Fargo Stagecoach Company, or Southwest Airlines? I'm just gonna say, I'm gonna say, as much as I, I love flying Southwest, um, I also love the speed rail or whatever you guys got. <laughs> Light finish. Mm -hmm. That's the wine we're having. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay, uh, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say Southwest. Because I'm hoping that, you, you think it's the light rail? <laughs> Sorry, I just heard somebody go either, ow, or no. I'm going to go back. What, which, what are you going with? What's your final answer? This is a nightmare. <laughs> okay, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I'm going to say it for Portland. So I'm going to say Southwest. <laughs> Southwest, 100% right. Yeah. Invented in 1966 over drinks, Southwest's founders drew a triangular flight pattern between San Antonio, Dallas, and Houston on a cocktail napkin. Meanwhile, the Portland Max remains a great place for many riders to drink a cocktail out of an old Super Big Gulp cup. Ah, uh, well, we both can drink. Uh, sure, and since you got that right, I have to take a shot, but since you're three, and I think you're going to take one, too. Yeah! Hannah Hart, thanks for coming on Livewire. Thanks for having me. Cheers! Hey there, it's Luke. All this month, we are asking folks to tell their friends about a podcast that they'll love. Doesn't have to be this one. We just want to get more people listening to podcasts in general. Here's how it works. You think of a podcast that you love, and then you tell somebody about it. Maybe on social media, or, and this is going to be weird, maybe in real life, face to face. You could even show them how to download the podcast to their phone or device, because sometimes that is a barrier to entry for people. And in case you want to know what it sounds like when people recommend podcasts, we asked some of our recent radio guests about podcasts they like. This is Hannah Hart, Jim Norton, and Mara Wilson. 
Take a listen. Uh, I like Science Friday. You guys ever listen to that one? No. Uh, I don't think I have, but it's, I feel like I should. It's good. It's kind of like uh, like TED Radio Hour. So like ah. Science Friday is like the equivalent of just like uh, science factoids in recent news that you should know. It's great. It's very um, digestible. That's why I like it. I only yeah. listen to things that people who have me on. Like, <laughs> I, I literally can't listen to anybody that won't have me on because I just feel like I'm missing out. So I like <laughs> Joe Rogan, I'd probably say, is the best one. So I like the fact that he's a variety of people. He's comics, MMA fighters, scientists. Yeah. So it's like it's like, kind of like a bunch of podcasts in one. Mm. Yeah. I really like uh, You Must Remember This, mm. which is all about uh, forgotten and weird Hollywood history. And it's it's stuff that like I, I never knew. And I, I grew up in L.A. I didn't know so much of the stuff. And just goes in depth in so many things. They have great ones. Like they have a whole series about uh, the Manson murders and how Charles Manson worked with so many different Hollywood people. Uh, great one to listen to on a family road trip, by the way. <laughs> we did we did that, me and my family. Yeah, that was fun. See how easy that was for them? Again, think about a podcast you love and then think about a person you love and then bring those two things together. And when you do so, let us know about it on social media and use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. And thank you. All right, that's going to do it for this week's show. A huge thanks this week to our guests who were amazing. Mara Wilson, Jim Norton, Hannah Hart, and John Craigie. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Amtrak, and Foley. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. Becky Fogel is our associate producer. Jason Rouse is our announcer. And Caitlin Kunkel was our writer for this show. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. D. Neil Blake does our house sound and recording. A special thank you to Carlson Audio and Revival Drum Shop. Our development director is Lauren Masterson. Laura Harden is our marketing manager. And additional funding came from the Meyer Memorial Trust and James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members. Special shout-out this week to William Small from Portland, Oregon. For more information about the show or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is... Uh, It would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.